0: eligible items only exclusions apply see ebaymotors.com hey hey it's conrad thompson and you're listening to 83 weeks with eric bischoff eric what's going on man how are you
1: i am fired up i'm ready i've done my homework i've i've had about a quart and a half of my special mate tea so i'm ready for you brother
0: bring it well, I'll tell you what we brought it last week. I really enjoyed our uncensored 1997 episode. I couldn't believe it won the poll. Really? I thought for sure that 95 would, or certainly 96, neither did though. Although we are going to get you uncensored 95 today and uncensored 96 next week, uh, but we went out of order because you guys really wanted to hear 97. And I got really good feedback from that. What was the feedback that you got Eric?
1: As did I, I was going through uh, a lot of it early this morning and almost all of it was extremely positive you know and and you know what rightfully so that was a great i hate to say the word great because it means different things to different people but i think the way i look at things the way i measure quality um i think that pay-per-view while it wasn't the most standout pay-per-view wcw ever did and there weren't you know any big memorable moments on it i think top to bottom and i may have said this last week I think it may be one of the better pay-per-views we produced
0: well certainly a hot finish a great undercard but what i was most intrigued about was there was so much news going on paul the rodman stuff and you know all the, the disco inferno firing there's just so much behind the scenes that we got to cover last week that i don't know when we would talk about again so i really enjoyed that show hopefully you enjoy this week's show But what you won't love is uncensored ninety-five. What a piece of shit pay-per-view this was.
1: I disagree. And I'm gonna I'm gonna start this thing off arguing with you about that immediately. Now, by today's standards, by what we've become accustomed to over the last twenty now four years, yeah, it's it's goofy in many respects. It's corny, it's sloppy. You know, I look at the television production, in this case a pay-per-view production, but you know what I mean from a production value point of view, the graphics are old, the packages are are something that you could probably produce a a better quality product on your iPhone right now if you were 12. So there's a lot of things about it that really make it stand out um, as such a departure from what we are used to now, particularly if we think about a great pay-per-view or even a good pay-per-view. But let's go back to 1995. Let's keep things in its proper context. Why is that, Conrad? Tell me why we want to keep things in its proper context. Context is king. You're fucking right it is. So in in the spirit of context, let's go back and look at what WWF was doing. Their cornball, goofy, lame shit that was burying them in terms of business and of course, we did a lot of goofy stuff. We've talked about that in the past, and we're going to see some of it, and we're going to talk about some of it on this pay-per-view. And by the way, I really want to encourage people. You're going to be really sorry, Conrad, that I'm on my third court of Herba mate T. But I want to really encourage people, when we give them a heads up about a pay-per-view, like we're about to break down, and we're going to break this thing down into little tiny bits and pieces. But really, I encourage people to go back. If you have the WWE Network great. If you don't, you should get it. Go back and take a look at this pay-per-view and I'm going to give you some time codes. I'm going to give you some very specific specific things here in, in the course of breaking this down. But if you go back, look at this pay-per-view, put it in the context of 1995, the style of wrestling, the type of characters, the production values and all that, and then compare it to what was the standard, actually the gold standard, which was still the WWF in 1995. I just don't think this pay per view is that bad. Combine that with the fact that you're going to see, and I know they don't seem like mind boggling cool shit, but there's a lot of really innovative things that we did on this pay per view that we built upon and and took into the you know 96, 97, ninety six ninety seven ninety ninety eight era. So yeah, I'm I'm we're, I'm anxious to talk about the show, and I'm and I'm anxious, by the way, to defend the fuck out of it. So bring it, Big Ben.
0: March 19th, 1995 Tupelo, below Mississippi is where this one went down it drew 5,782 fans, about 4,900 paid a gate of 83,000 or change. Now the building was set up for around 7,000 fans, but we didn't quite get there on and off. You guys ran a fair amount of pay-per-views in Mississippi. What's up with that? It feels like a, a, a show that, uh, or of this magnitude, a, a major pay-per-view. The WWF was not running a lot of pay-per-views in Mississippi. Why did it make sense for WCW?
1: Again, you know, we go back in time. If, if we want to visit this timeline in 1995, you know, WCW, although we had brought in Hogan, we had brought in uh, Savage, we were doing different things and, and growing. We had the confidence of Turner executives for the first time in WCW's history, by the way, as as a part of Turner. So there was a lot of positive things, but we were we were still very much in a cost saving mode wherever and whenever we could. And when you keep, you know, when you when you keep in mind that the majority of the revenue from a pay per view is not generated by ticket sales, it's something that's easy to talk about, it's easy to write about, and it is without question a a really accurate uh, indicator in terms of the overall health of, you know, WCW at the time or WWF at the same time. So it's certainly something to consider. But when you're talking about making money, you know, 80% of the money or more probably came from the pay-per-view itself, not from the ticket sales of the venue we were in. So in terms of, you know, why go to Tupelo, number one, it's close. Number two, it's a right-to-work state. Let me go back to it's close. Most of the people, you know, the production people that we had were all based in Atlanta, so asking them to drive to Tupelo rather than flying a crew of 130 or 40 people, production people, asking them to drive to Tupelo, made a lot more fiscal sense than flying them to Utica, New York, New York, for example, or anywhere else on the map. So number one, it was efficient from a from a cost point of view. Number two, it was a right-to-work state, and for people who aren't in employment law, you have certain states that aren't right-to-work states that are heavily unionized, and good luck go trying to produce a pay-per-view there. Tell I hope me you have, all
0: about uh, it. I- I- I'm learning so much about that lately.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, it's great to go to Vegas. It's great to go to New York. It's great to go to L.A. Those, those And and not just those, obviously, big markets, but you have the same issue in Chicago. You have the same issue in Boston and Baltimore. There's There are a lot of cities that you really would love to go to, but when you, you know, add on all the incremental expense that comes along with working in a heavily unionized environment, it gets cost prohibitive, especially, you know, when you're trying to save money and And generate revenue. So, yeah, it it didn't sound cool to say coming to you live from Tupelo, Mississippi. It doesn't sound nearly as good as coming from Madison Square Garden or coming to you from, you know, MGM Grand Hotel. All that sounds great. And it's great branding. And you hope to get there. But at this particular point in time in 1995, we weren't there yet.
0: Well, let's talk about where you were. It's your first uncensored uh, it's going to be, go on to become a yearly pay-per-view for WCW. And it was pushed as unsanctioned. Anything goes in all the matches and all the matches have different themes. Um, what's the, or how did this idea come together that we needed an unsanctioned pay-per-view
1: it really started with the decision. And again, a financial one, the decision was completely financial and it was necessary. Um, when we made that decision to increase the number of pay-per-views from four to five to six to nine to 12, it became really obvious to me early on that each pay-per-view we did, you know, the risk of doing more pay-per-views was that, at least in my mind at that time, was that you, you risk diluted, diluting the significance of them. You know, when there are only four pay-per-views a year. That means you really have three months to build up momentum, to build up a story, to build up characters and and create your arc so that you build to a crescendo that's going to be played out on a pay-per-view. That That formula was really, really easy. In fact, I could do that. I could probably write that kind of television now in about six or eight hours a week. That would be really easy to do. But as you increase the number of pay-per-views, they become less significant. When you only have four, everybody knows what they are. You know, they all have their own brand. They all have their own identity. They have, in many cases, their own legacy, especially in the WWE. And WCW didn't have that. With the exception of Starrcade and Halloween Havoc and a couple of the other ones, WCW didn't have pay-per-views that had a real strong brand associated with them or brand image associated with them. So the idea, and it's, it's it's why Sturgis occurred. It's why, um, the events that we, the bash at the beaches, that's why they were developed because we wanted the audience to know when you get this pay-per-view, it's going to be in a certain type of environment or it's going to have a certain set of rules or lack thereof. So the intent or goal, or the decision that led to the decision, was to try to find ways to give each pay-per-view its own unique identity. Or as they would say in Marketing 101 at your local junior college, a unique selling proposition.
0: A lot of people are going to point to this concept of the pay-per-view being unsanctioned, anything goes, and they're going to say, Oh, this was a Kevin Sullivan idea because he saw that ECW was getting some traction, uh, with the hardcore fans. And I know you're going to say, no, it had nothing to do with it, but do you think that perhaps from Kevin Sullivan's standpoint, someone who had worked for ECW was friendly with Paul really had his finger on the pulse of the hardcore fan. Do you think that that was a consideration for him?
1: I think it's highly possible. And I, you know, I anticipated this question and, and I thought about it last night for a while and my, my gut reaction is you would have anticipated, just like you said, you, you, I'm going to call bullshit. No way. Never happened. I can't tell you what was in Kevin's mind. Right. I can't tell you how Kevin arrived at some of the ideas that Kevin arrived at sure. some of the best ideas I've ever come up with. You know, inside of the wrestling industry and outside of the wrestling industry have taken place when I've been on a treadmill and not when I'm sitting down trying to come up with an idea. Right. So so, you know, did in in Kevin's, you know, universe, in his conversations with Paul and his familiarity with what was going on down there. And let's let's be honest about this, Kevin had a real affinity for this type of product. Kevin loved you know, a hardcore matches and the no rules. I mean, clearly Kevin Sullivan wasn't, wasn't interested in, in getting involved in, you know, Japanese style wrestling or luchador style wrestling. It wasn't his forte. Kevin's background, his instincts, his experience, positive experience was all probably influenced tremendously by characters and matches and people that he knew that liked that hardcore style because that was his style. So I, I I say it's a fair observation. I don't know that it's true or not true that Kevin was influenced. I I will say, though, um, I'm not sure Kevin really came up with the idea for this pay-per-view. I think it was probably driven as much by marketing and their attempts to help us find ways to market pay-per-views that are unique and different. Um, It wasn't like there was one person, whether it was Kevin or me or anybody else, sitting in the throne saying, this is what we're going to do on March 19th in Tupelo, Mississippi. It was, again, probably half a dozen different people involved before we finally arrived at this. But I can assure you and the listeners and look, some of them are going to believe me and some of them are not. I don't really give two shits. But I'm telling you from my perspective This was probably born more out of trying to find a way to present something different than the last pay-per-view we did and the one we're going to do next. And, you know, Paul Heyman and ECW didn't invent hardcore matches. They didn't invent bunkhouse matches. I'm pretty sure they never did a a truck flying down the road match, whatever the fuck that was called. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I mean, there's a lot of stuff on here that is not representative all, at all of the kind of product that ECW was producing at that time, that, by the way, no one was watching. But, you know, it it is what it is. I just don't think it's fair to suggest that Kevin or anyone went, oh, look what ECW's doing. Well, we're going to do our version of that. I think that's a very juvenile way of looking at it. And I understand it, but it's just not really accurate.
0: Let me ask you, you know, there are some some really – pretty silly gimmick matches on this show you just mentioned the king of the road match was there an idea that was kicked around that hey it'd be great if we could do this and turner put the kibosh on it that you remember
1: no and i can't overemphasize how in in 94 95 96 97 the only call i got from anybody in the North Tower, WCW's, my offices were in the South Tower of the CNN Center. All of the heavy metal was over on the North Tower. Those were the people you had to watch out for. And I, the only calls I got from the North Tower, which, you know, my boss was Bill Shaw and or Harvey Schiller, depending on the time, and Ted Turner. And to a degree, I had a dotted line to Brad Siegel and Bill Burke. And I guess Ted Turner was standing on top of all of that. but. Um, I never got a phone call about anything. They never got involved with creative. I never had to go to them and ask permission. The idea of going to Bill Shaw, who would have been my direct report, um, or I would report it directly to him. The idea of me going, ah, we got an idea. We want to do this match. I better go run it by Bill and make sure it's okay. Th- that never happened. The thought never crossed my mind or, nor, nor did it cross theirs <laughs> until about 98. Then, then things changed dramatically.
0: We're coming on the heels here of super brawl, which was the first ever meeting of Hulk Hogan and Vader. It drew a legitimate set out, sell in Baltimore, 13,339 fans, $165,000 house, a big deal for WCW in that era. I know we're going to talk about that, uh, in, in the future at some point in more detail, but on the heels of a big show like that the first ever Hogan Vader, the big sellout. You gotta be feeling pretty good about the direction WCW's headed in. Do you know it?
1: I think overall. Yeah. I mean, again, I never sat down and went, wow, this pay-per-view did so great. So wow, we're, we're on a roll or boy, these ratings were, you know, up 25%. So we're on a roll. You know, I never looked at any one indicator in order to try to get a feel for where we were going, um, if we were sitting down and we were having a, a meeting, you know, with Sharon Sadello and her team about where we're going in pay-per-view or what we need to do to improve our pay-per-view strategy or tactics, then of course we're gonna look at those kinds of numbers and draw a conclusion. But my my, you know, my responsibility was to the entire company. So I tended to look at things in buckets. And while the pay-per-view numbers were were heading in the right direction, there were a lot of other things that weren't and needed to be fixed and caused a lot of concern for me and and took a lot of focus and resources so yeah i mean it was an indicator you know just one of probably four or five that was really important at that time
0: Melzer's going to report that uh well let me just tell you exactly word for word what he said world championship wrestling has taken the next step in the experiment to find out what exactly is the saturation point for pay-per-view wrestling WCW is now taking the gamble of taking pay-per-view from being a quarterly special mega card to something akin to a bi-monthly special to basically being the major monthly house show with the decision to drop both the June and November clash, of the championship cards, and replace them with pay-per-view shows instead. This will give WCW nine pay-per-view shows and two clashes in 95. The only one remaining being in August with the distinct possibility of dropping clashes altogether after the next one. And then going to 10 or 11 pay-per-views in 96. So this is, uh, certainly a shift because the WWF, of course, first popped up with one pay-per-view and then later they added SummerSlam and then survivor or survivor series then SummerSlam, then Royal Rumble. And so it felt like it was a quarterly thing, uh, and Tom, the NWA and WCW would follow suit. And then it became every other month, and now you guys are sort of eyeing monthly pay-per-view. This had to be a business decision that you guys poured over, uh, sort of talked to me about how you got to this decision, and what strategies pricing played. Because uh, once upon a time, you guys were doing these shows for like nineteen ninety-five. Uh, now you're going to raise your events from twenty-four ninety-five to twenty-seven fifty, and thirty-two fifty if you waited and ordered the day of the show. So you're still encouraging people to do a big pre-order, but back in 92 pay-per-views were just 1995 and you bumped it up to 24 95. All of these little changes, these incremental changes, $5 doesn't seem like a big deal, but when you look at tens of thousands or perhaps hundreds of thousands of buys, it certainly makes a big difference to the bottom line. Uh, talk to me about the business strategy of, uh, going towards more pay-per-views and adjusting that price incrementally.
1: Well, the idea of doing more pay-per-views was a pretty simple strategy to develop because the only revenue that WCW really had was from pay-per-views. Um, the only way we could increase our revenue would be by growing the only source of, or the major source of, of revenue that we had, which was pay-per-view. Uh, the, the, the idea of doing more was somewhat controversial internally. I mean, it, look, when, again, I got to, Slow down here. 94, when I introduced the idea of doing things at Disney, with the exception of Dusty Rhodes and one or two other people, everybody in that company hated the idea. To to one degree, or let me say, disliked the idea to one degree or another because it was a radical departure. It required a complete change in the way we did everything. And human beings, as a rule, fucking hate change. Right. I mean, if, 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 I, if I called you on the phone and said, Conrad, I'll, from now on, when you get up in the morning and, and you put on your slippers, you have to, no matter what, put your left one on first. Well, that's going to be fine if that's what you normally do. But if you grew up your entire life putting your right slipper on first, you're going to hate it. You're going to resist it. You're going to get frustrated with it. You're going to, ah, fuck it. I want to do it. That's human nature. And within Twitter broadcasting, you know, keep in mind, I've got, you know, probably 40, 45 people at that time, you know, working directly for WCW in the production and post production area. In addition to that, we've got probably another 40 to 50, depending on the type of event, of freelancers that we had been using for a long, long time, and while they're freelancers and they they don't they're not employees and they don't get to vote on shit, they certainly have influence, right, and and have input. So anytime you make drastic changes to anything, you're especially when you've got a lot of people involved, you're going to have a lot of resistance. You have to expect it, and I did. I had re, re, a lot of resistance with Disney on um, in in terms of increasing the paper number of pay-per-views. You know, I had Don Edwards who and Bill Bush, who at that time were kind of overseeing finance. Dick Cheatham uh, was the liaison we had with Turner Finance. Uh, he didn't work for WCW, but he was close to us. Uh, they were all for it because they're just looking at numbers. But the people on the ground, they're actually doing the work. You know, they didn't think it was a good idea because no one had ever done that before. It's not how it's done. It's not what Vince McMahon does, you know, not a, not in a Vince voice. But, you know, why would we do something so radically different than Vince McMahon and the WWF when they're, they're so far out in front, we should be doing exactly what they're doing instead of doing something different. That was the general mindset of most of the people in WCW and Turner, to, to a degree, at that time. So there was some – Sharon Sadello, I think, was probably – and I don't want to say she was negative because that wouldn't be fair to her or, or the story. But she was very, very cautious about it. She was afraid, concerned, better word, that it would somehow diminish WCW's already pretty fragile status with our pay-per-view providers, DISH, DirecTV primarily. Um because if there would have been a downturn as a result of increasing the numbers, going back to what I said earlier, you know, our concern was that we might dilute the value of these pay-per-views or the perceived value of them by having more of them. Um, if there would have been a downturn as a result of that, Sharon would have had to overcome that challenge. Naturally, she wouldn't, she would rather avoid that. It was a risk, sure, but it was a calculated one. And and she was on board. Once we said that we're going to take the risk, then she went to work and did the the job. Uh, In terms of price point, that was – obviously, we wanted to raise the price, but we wouldn't have done so without a lot of consultation with our pay-per-view providers because at the end of the equation, they're the ones that have to market it. their clients and they know their clients better than WCW does keep it or did keep in mind WCW didn't have a direct you know producer to consumer relationship we had to go through the middleman which was direct TV which is why by the way this is completely off the fucking topic but this is why I am not overly excited about TV as a necessary item in, in the wrestling model anymore because increasingly, TV is becoming nothing but a middleman, just the way DirecTV has been for decades and is slowly losing and diminishing its value in the marketplace to the consumer because there's so many other ways to get the product now. But at that time, there wasn't. We had no options. You're either in bed with TV and Dish and you're in a favorable relationship with them or 80% of your business is going to suffer if you're not. So it was a very important relationship and we increased the price commensurate with their input in, in, you know, a lot of the, um, decision-making processes on their end. They're the ones that told us what they thought we could get away with without adversely affecting the product.
0: Did you have a certain number you were trying to hit? You know, you talked about we're trying to do more revenue and really the only way to do that is to do more pay-per-views. I think. Another way of saying that would be, Hey, maybe we could sell more pay-per-views, keep the same number, but sell more. Clearly that was, you know, a different strategy, but you probably, I think this is fair to say, realize there is a, a certain amount of devout, hardcore wrestling fans who will purchase more and maybe it made more sense to squeeze more money out of those handful, as opposed to hope that you could go attract newer. Meaning if you already have a paying customer upselling a little more, might be easier than going and acquiring a new customer completely fair
1: to say uh obvious and yes fair to say and it's an obvious not to diminish the observation because that was part of it look if if you again time and place you know context is so important our my goal my number one goal bill shaw made sure i knew the mandate was to make one dollar a profit again for our listeners that don't really know the history other than top line stuff Ted Turner bought NWA out of bankruptcy. So it had been a long time before the NWA had been profitable, before they went out of business. We're talking probably 1987, 86. Turner buys them out of bankruptcy sometime, I think, in 88, maybe late, early 89, or 89. Now you've got WCW, which staggered into the 90s, losing millions and millions of dollars, actually losing more millions of dollars every year up until this point. This is the first point in that evolution of WCW and its relationship with Turner Broadcasting that it even looked like there was a half-assed chance that we could break even. So th- the goal was not, how do we grow this business over the next 10 years or five years? And I, by, by the way, as a result of what <laughs> I've, I learned at that time and, and subsequently, you need to have a 10-year plan, a five-year plan, and a three-year plan, and a one-year plan. But at that time, we weren't concerned about 10 years or five years or three years. The pressure was on us to break even this year. And if we don't do it this year, next year. And we would be measured by not whether we succeeded or failed in terms of whether we made a profit in 95 or 96. That gun, that's not the gun that was to my head. The gun that was at the back of my head was, if you don't make that first dollar profit, Get close enough to make me believe you will in the next 12 months. So there was no long-term thinking. And in the short term, if I needed to make an extra $6 million to make up, you know, the deficit, you know, in, in incurred by all of the expenses we had, then the quickest, and really the only way to do not the quickest, the only way to do it would have been by increasing the number of pay-per-views. Otherwise, trying to, you know, if you look at a successful pay-per-view in this case, let's say it made $2.5 million and let's say you know we could incrementally you know increase that buy rate by 10% every time we did a pay-per-view well if you're only doing six pay-per-views and you're only picking up a couple hundred grand every time you you go it's going to take you a year or more to make as much money as you could off one pay-per-view so there were, you know growing incrementally or by engaging in another strategy just really wasn't an option. We only had one if we wanted to survive, and that was to increase the number of pay-per-views.
0: Let's talk a little bit about something else you're starting around this same time. The rumors are swirling in the Observer that you're about to start a cruiserweight title tournament. And allegedly, this has been talked about for quite a while. And of course, that brings up names of who could be participants. Sabu, Benoit, Dean Malenko, Two Cold Scorpio are all names that are floating around. Uh, talk to me about the advent of the cruiserweight division, because this is something that really became a hallmark for WCW and nitro is given a lot of credit for, uh, but it wasn't quite ready here in early 95, but at least you had eyes on it and we know that it's coming. What can you tell us about the big push for the cruiserweights?
1: All of that was influenced by the time that I was spending in Japan. And again, at this particular time in 94 here at 95 in March of 95, um, and that you know, we're talking about uncensored this pay-per-view. The very next month, I went to uh, Tokyo for a WCW event, and then jumped on a plane and went to North Korea with Antonio Inoki and you know the entire New Japan roster. So the the, the Japanese influence on me at this particular time was very strong. You know, Too Cold Scorpio, uh, New Japan, Benoit Guerrero, Malenko, New Japan. So many of the guys that you know, at least in my mind that represented a great cruiserweight tournament because the division wasn't really a, 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 a firm thought in my head at this point, just the tournament. But those are all guys that I was aware of through my relationship and association with new Japan pro wrestling.
0: Was there anybody that you recall being an advocate for or against a cruiserweight division? I know that seems silly in hindsight, but you know, back in the day we heard lots of Rumor and innuendo that guys would sort of mock the size of the competitors and say, Oh, it's not cruiser height. Why are all these guys vanilla midgets and blah, blah, blah? And we'll talk about that later. But when you're first talking about it with people in the office or whoever your confidants are at the time, whether it's Kevin Sullivan or Terry Taylor or Ganya or whoever, you would have these type of discussions and hypotheticals and what if brainstorming sessions. Is anybody sort of, I, I don't know about that because predominantly what had been pushed in the United States were these big hulking 300 pounders, right?
1: Yeah. And we're going to talk a lot about that as we break each one of these, these matches down. I mean, that was the late eighties, early nineties creative era. If you look at what WWF was doing again in March of 1995, it was the big hulking, you know, larger than life, fairly animated, if not over the top animated characters, We're seeing, you know, even though a lot of the people that we're going to see on this show, not a lot, but many of them, you know, like John Tenta, for example, Avalanche, I mean, at this point in 95, he was probably three years past his expiration date, but only three years, that's 36 months, you know, had, had this match occurred, the match that we're going to talk about here with Randy Savage, had it occurred three years earlier, four years earlier. Um, people would have looked at it much differently than they did even in 1995. So th- this pay-per-view, and one of the reasons I'm excited about it, I'm not too worried about getting my ass kicked by you, is because while it may not be the highest quality pay-per-view we ever did, and that's a stretch, uh, it also isn't as bad as, you. well, one might think it is when you look at it for what it was. We're really on the tipping point here of what became – Really, uh, the next evolution of the presentation of wrestling that we're still seeing today. This was the beginning of that revolution. And I'm not saying we were doing it exclusively. Other people were as well. But what's represented here, I think, is that, you know, this is the tipping point. This is where things really started to change. This is where guys like, you know, Earthquake or John Tenta, Avalanche, um, started becoming obsolete. This is where that bigger man, and there's several of them on this, on the show. They just that big lumbering style. Um, it was fading. And, and we're seeing that here.
0: I guess it's worth mentioning here that, uh, you would wind up signing Chris Benoit and Dean Malenko a few months after the show. Uh, Sabu, of course, uh, had a couple of matches in 95 as well. Uh, so you were certainly embracing that era for sure. Uh, let's talk a little bit about. Uh, Gene Okerlund, he's making the rounds in the dirt sheets where, uh, he's, um, teasing the death of a 45 year old, former heavyweight champion. And this of course leads to a lot of business, a lot of calls, um, reportedly in the neighborhood of 50 to $75,000 over the weekend, which is normally a five or $6,000 position. So it's doing a huge multiple of that. But he's referencing Jerry Blackwell, but he's sort of giving the hint based on the age and former heavyweight champion that it might be Ric Flair. Um, that's a bit of a reach, but either way, people are pretty critical of it. What did you think of the, I don't know if sleazy is the right word, but, um, well, I don't know how to categorize it. The, the, the TMZ feel of the hotline plugs.
1: Wow, I'm, 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 I'm intentionally taking a pause and a breath here so I don't go off. It was clickbait, and it's the same kind of clickbait that so many of the other publications and hotlines were using at the time. And ironically, it's the same kind of clickbait that is driving the entertainment industry and the news cycle today. I mean, it, it, in many ways, Gene Oakland was ahead of his time. And and it, that kind of a tease, yeah, I was aware. It w- it was distasteful. I was aware there was some there was some blowback. A lot of people were upset about it because people get so emotionally invested in this, and forget that it's a business. And anytime you're teasing or even y- utilizing, it's one of the reasons I don't like talking about people that are no longer here. It's just a very, I don't know. I just I, I fucking hate it. I refuse as often as not to even go there because, you know, there's certain things that you just need to stay away from. This is, after all, entertainment. Yes, it's a business, but it's really just entertainment. And I was aware that it went too far, but it's not like I got blistered over it. It's not like, you know, I was so upset with Gene, I wanted to choke him out or fire him or yell at him. I didn't even raise my voice about it. Look, he made a decision. He made a call. Did he go a little too far? Even in that time? Sure. But uh, and you know in retrospect really was it any different than half the shit that we all see online now or that we see even on the <laughs> cable news you know when they tease a, a news story or they, they they tease a segment the weather channel for crying out loud does it so i don't know
0: any pushback from turner i mean did anybody in the north tower notice this at all none okay no all right, let's keep it moving here. Let's talk about, uh, something that I found hysterical in my research. Hulk Hogan and Jimmy Hart signed a record deal with select records on March 13th during the toy fair in New York. Uh, Hogan put an album out in Germany. And of course, I think a lot of uh, younger fans may not realize this, but Jimmy was actually a part of a band called the gentries that even had a few gold records back in the sixties. And he was a big proponent of the music that was done in the WBF and WCW. And that was really his scene but the idea of a Hulk Hogan album. Wow. What do you remember about this?
1: Two words for you, bruh. David Hasselhoff.
0: (laughs) (laughs) A lot of our listeners may not make the connection there. Tell them what David Hasselhoff was in Germany.
1: He was huge in Germany. He was a massive star in Germany. He held a rock concert. I believe when the, the wall came down, um, between East and West Germany, or shortly thereafter. And as a result of that, you know, David Hasselhoff, up until honestly, Conrad, as recently as I guess it's been about eight years ago now, I got involved with an online gaming project. And one of the first people that we signed was David Hasselhoff because we knew all of the big marketing companies and the online gaming companies overseas, in the UK, Germany in particular, were still massive fans of David Hasselhoff for something that he did in 1989 or, or 90. And he his music was number one on the charts over there in its category. He was tour, David Hasselhoff was touring Germany with his band on a regular basis. So, Jimmy, you know, I don't want to be critical because I don't know dick about the music business and I don't want to try to pretend I do, but Jimmy did. And Jimmy saw an opportunity. And Hulk Hogan in 1995, maybe not as popular as David Hasselhoff was in Germany. And I know that sounds really weird to say, especially today. But go back in time, do your research, get out your fucking Google machine and see for yourself. David Hasselhoff was a big damn deal and so was his music. And I think that was the idea is to get a record label and to be able to make a lot of money overseas um, because that's what David Hasselhoff did. It's amazing.
0: Uh, WCW would be in the news again. in the observer, when they're saying that, uh, you guys made your presence felt in a big way, especially when compared with the WWF at the toy fair, uh, Dave would say that you guys spent a ton of money announcing your new toy line with the full page color ads in every licensing journal. And what was described as a power Rangers level of advertising WWF in comparison was just advertised almost as an afterthought in the Hasbro displays. And as far as the actual fair itself. You guys had Hogan, Johnny B. Bad, Randy Savage, and Jimmy Hart representing WCW, while the WWF just sent Diesel and Bret Hart. And uh, Melts would say the big thing they were pushing were Styrofoam heads called hero heads of Hogan and Sting. And the WCW reps claimed that unlike the WWF, the WCW wrestlers were going to use their gimmicks in matches. And WCW reps were telling people to come over and meet real wrestlers. as a knock on the WWF. Uh, their reps for, uh, the foreign markets were, um, quote in our country, the WWF has gone down and everyone knows WCW is number one pointing to Hogan and Savage with the group as proof that everyone is now leaving the WWF because it's a sinking ship. And that's getting a lot of attention from people like toys or us and whatnot. And this is a, a part of the business that we don't really talk about a lot on the show. And I'm glad we get to dig into it with you here because You're really the only guy who's talked about the impact of having a Hulk Hogan on your roster and what that meant relative to ad sales. What did it mean for something like a toy fair like this? Because it feels like a major deal to have Hulk Hogan at one of these.
1: Well, it was a major deal. And again, for listeners, and and I'm glad you brought this up, because sometimes in our conversations when we do these podcasts, you assume and I assume, we both we both sometimes forget that a lot of listeners don't really understand the, the the dynamic, the relationship between a a licensee and a licensor. Licensor in this case being WCW, meaning we held the intellectual property rights um to our characters you know, vis-a-vis our contracts. We would then enter into an agreement with a toy company, in this case THQ where we would assign those trademarks for their products. THQ picked the products, or whoever our toy licensee was. Sometimes we had different toy licensees for different categories. But the licensees, the people who paid us the money and the royalties to manufacture and distribute product into the retail marketplace, they made the decisions on what the products were and the price points of those products. They spent the money. Marketing and promoting a toy fair, not WCW. Now, WCW would have incurred some costs. There might have been even some co op um, advertising involved where we would agree in certain situations to, you know, throw a couple bucks into the bucket, so to speak, more than a couple bucks. But that was rare. For the most part, it was the licensees because that's their business. Our business was to control the marks and create a demand for them, their job was to make the decisions regarding the types of products, how they're distributed, and promoting them to their customers, which is, you know, the retail side of the off. equation.
0: I don't mean to cut you off, but you said control the marks and create demand for them. You mean trademarks, not in the wrestling sense.
1: Oh, yes, I'm sorry. When, I, re- when I, I don't usually use the word mark as it relates to wrestling fans. Yes, when I say marks, generally I mean trademarks.
0: I, I didn't mean that to be ugly. I just know a lot of times. No, no, about, no,
1: no. Yeah. I, listen, that, that happens. You know, you and I now have talked to, you know, we've probably spent almost 200 hours talking about wrestling stuff and we end up having our own shorthand. But sometimes people listening don't have that same shorthand. So I appreciate that.
0: So it's a big deal that, uh, that you're there. And I guess behind the scenes, um, you should know that here in early 95, the, the WWF is, is sort of sucking high and teat. And Vince McMahon in particular feels threatened at this particular event because of how dominant you guys were. And Bruce has talked about that on his show. Uh, let's talk about the, the action figure deal for a minute. Let's double down. Let's pretend like we're Zack Ryder and Kurt Hawkins today. You guys had a, a line of figures with the glue in 1990. I think that was really, uh, the first set of WCW figures, at least that I remember. Uh, and then you go years without them and then they pop back up with a, a new manufacturer. Um, what was the, the relationship as far as you knew it, when you first came into power at WCW with the action figure market,
1: we had none again, you know, the, the WCW brand in terms of licensing was non-existent. A couple people tried. Couple couple licensees, you know, jumped in and gave it a whirl, but they were all unsuccessful. And, you know, you can only you can only have so many negative experiences in the marketplace before the word gets out and you're kind of dead in the water. And I think while a couple people, Galoob included, tried to go out into the marketplace because they didn't really understand wrestling, they didn't really understand the disparate relationship between WWF at the time and WCW. So they went, oh, it's wrestling. Great. Everybody's buying wrestling. Let's do that. And then they get into it and they fall flat on their face and, you know, they find out too late why. But once that happens two or three, four times within that licensing community, the word's out and you're, you know, you're toxic. And it took us a long time. It took WCW a long time to get over that toxicity. And that reputation in the marketplace. So there was, if there was any licensing in place when I took over, uh, finally took over. I think probably in '96 is when I became president, and I actually oversaw marketing because even at this time, in March of 1995, Bob Dew was still the vice president, executive vice president, and he oversaw marketing in terms of a direct report and made all the decisions there. Not me. I was barely, very rarely involved in it, but. It was weak at best,
0: man. That's so fascinating to hear you talk about because one of the things I think people overlook, and I know this just feels like a Hulk Hogan love fest today, but from a, a salesmanship standpoint, if you know, when you're going to make your pitch, uh, that you're going to hear, cause you've heard multiple times. Well, we tried that before. Well, you know, we're interested, but you know, we saw that galoob deal didn't work out and why would that be any different from us, especially when you're saying at the time people thought, oh, well, we can't get the WWF, but look, this is wrestling, this will work. And then when it doesn't work out, you need a way once you've, you know, for, to use a wrestling phase, killed the town, you need a way to overcome that objection and the way to overcome that objection is to plant your flag in Hulk Hogan, is it not And to say, well, hang on now, that was then this is now, now we've got Hulk Hogan. So whereas maybe before, you know, the perception of the marketplace may have, may have been that we were number two we've got Hulk Hogan. So clearly when we've got the biggest names, when those wrestling fans go to the, the Toys R Us or the Walmart or wherever, and they go down that aisle where the action figures are, they're going to be looking for the Hulk Hogan doll. And now you can make that doll, right?
1: Absolutely. Right. And Kyra, this is why, and I'm learning to control myself a little bit more as you and I finally are (laughs) doing more and more and more of these. It hasn't even been a year yet, but in the beginning, you know, when I'd get so hot and react, so, Strongly and emotionally about some of the things that, you know, whatever online newsletter person would write it's because they didn't understand they didn't understand they didn't really understand the business they couldn't possibly have understood the the tactics in the strategy they didn't have to face the same types of challenges they, and and they've never really for the most part any of them have ever experienced the types of business decisions that we had to make in order to grow the business and we've covered this so many times but you know there was so much heat on me for bringing in Hulk Hogan from You know, Dave Meltzer, Wade Keller, everybody across the board, the audience themselves, you know, while many of them were excited, we know Hulk knows that when he first came over, once the big splash was over, the audience was always already a little tired of the red and yellow thing. But not the people in New York. Right. You know, not people in the the licensing business, not people in the pay-per-view business. You know, not the people, that, not promoters overseas that we desperately needed to try to negotiate favorable deals with. They were all really excited about Hogan and Savage. And as a result of their excitement, we grew some really big deals, both in terms of international tours, but more importantly, to licensing and merchandising. You know, fast forward now from this point to, I don't know, 24 to 36 months. I've got a $10 million advance in my hand from EA Sports. Actually, it was $8 million. But it's not going to happen overnight. You've got to work your way to get there. And while the decision from a dirt sheet writer, Dave Meltzer, point of view, not to pick on Dave because everybody else felt the same way, from their perspective,
0: oh, man, he's
1: just rehashing WWE stuff. Uh Uh-huh. I am. And guess what? I've got an eight million dollar check in my hand as a result of it, and you don't. And in the meantime, we were able to grow the product, and we were able to grow it. So, when when you analyze any one decision in a vacuum, and whether that was a good idea or a bad idea in the moment, without knowing how it's going to play itself out, it's really easy to be critical of it because you don't know you don't know what's going on behind the scenes. And really bringing in Hogan, bringing in Savage, while it didn't turn the numbers around overnight and it didn't turn our pay-per-view numbers around overnight, which was a very childish way of looking at business anyway. While it, they didn't do that, they did turn around our licensing opportunities.
0: Let's keep it going here. Master um, Word Right. Eric Bischoff was scheduled to meet with the head of K-1, so I guess that organization will be involved in the planned pay-per-view called WMAF, which is for the World Martial Arts Federation, which they are planning on June 4th in Tokyo, where it is that Rick San Gracie wanted hundred and fifty dollars for the show, and they thought the price was too high. What, do you, what can you tell us about meeting with uh, K1?
1: I actually became pretty good friends with, uh, his name is Ishi Kanjo. Um, as a matter of fact, Sunny and I were going to try to look him up when we were in Japan last, but we ran out of time. Uh, had, uh, he created the K one tournament, uh, invited me over to, to see it. I went over and saw it. Then he invited me to come over and actually do color and play by play with Bruce Lee's daughter. Her name was Shannon. And you guessed it. I was doing play by play and doing it with Shannon, with Bruce Lee's daughter. So I I developed a really good relationship with him and there was no, you know, it wasn't like we were going to try to do anything, you know, jointly between WCW and and K1 because I was already doing business with New Japan and there was no interest in a, you know, Japanese trifecta. You know, K1 was a straight up legitimate, you know, kickboxing event and at that time New Japan was, you know, New Japan Pro Wrestling and they weren't trying to mix. And I certainly wouldn't have gone over to Japan and brought my brand to what could be perceived as a to a, as a, as a competitor to to New Japan. So I was just there strictly because I was a a fan of martial arts and was interested in K1. I developed a really good relationship with Ishikajo and ended up actually doing play by play for him.
0: Well, things you learn. Didn't know any of that. Uh, of course, um, I guess we should mention the uh, WWF is getting a lot of coverage on the other channel because their pay-per-view this March is WrestleMania 11 and they've signed Lawrence Taylor to wrestle Bam Bam Bigelow. Of course, Lawrence Taylor is going to get a bunch of coverage for them. Fast forward two years and in March of 97, you guys would do this with Dennis Rodman and uncensored, not necessarily that he wrestles, but still it's a mainstream celebrity on pay-per-view. Uh, what'd you think when you saw that they had landed Lawrence Taylor on the other side?
1: I I didn't really think much of it. I mean, and and not to to diminish it. I mean, again, I think the the assumption and the narrative that probably created the assumption is that I was constantly, you know, talking about, thinking about, watching, wondering, worrying about what WWF was doing. I wasn't. I really, really wasn't. So was I aware of it? Sure. Everybody in the industry was aware of it And, and a lot of fans around the country, around the world. But it wasn't something that preoccupied me. WWF had used celebrities extensively in the past. So it wasn't anything new. It was just a different person. That's all.
0: Let's talk a little bit about uh, the horsemen. It makes the uh, newsletters that there's been discussions about bringing in the road warriors to feud with a new four horsemen. And the idea here is that the new horsemen, of course, would consist of Ric Flair and Arn Anderson but probably a third member as Steve Austin. And they're even speculating that the fourth member could be Tully Blanchard, Dustin Rhodes, or even Vader. Did you ever have a discussion? I mean, obviously it never happened, but do you remember ever kicking around or freestyling? Hey, what about Dustin? What about Vader? What about Steve Austin?
1: I didn't. Now, doesn't mean it didn't happen. It doesn't mean that that conversation didn't take place, you know, between any number of people that it could have taken place between but not with me
0: uh okay let's keep it going here let's talk instead about um the possibility of kurt coming in because this is the first time i remember seeing this in the newsletters melzer would write wcw wants kurt to be one of the four horsemen it's not the first time they've wanted him probably won't be the last the problem always ends up that Kurt's asking price is really high because he's in great shape financially from an insurance settlement and thus has no need to wrestle for money. So it's going to take big money to get him out of the house. Of course, that winds up happening, but it's like two years and change later. Uh, why, why wasn't a deal able to be made here with Kurt? Uh, was this something you were pushing for, somebody in the office? What can you tell us about your early dealings with him?
1: I think, well, in terms of who was pushing it, I would have completely supported it because of my relationship with Kurt before even getting into the wrestling business and certainly being aware of his success uh in the industry so I would have 100% been in support of it and probably did my guess is uh that more than likely would have been a Greg Gagne push uh Greg clearly uh would have valued Kurt probably as much or more than anybody, again, because of his relationship with him. So I'm sure it was a conversation that took place. It was a conversation I would – had I been a part of it, um, I would have fully supported it. But, you know, for whatever reason, it didn't happen. When we eventually did do the deal with Kurt, it wasn't a very difficult deal to do. So I'm – you know, his asking price, by the way, Kurt, was not – you know in the big scheme of things relative to everybody else, particularly at his level with his experience was not a really expensive guy to have on the roster. So I'm, I'm not sure where the asking price is too high comes in.
0: Let's talk about Harvey Schiller. Uh, Word right Harvey Schiller, former chairman of the United States Olympic committee and commissioner of the Southeastern conference and current head of TBS sports is now the chief overseer of WCW, which has been moved from the TBS programming to TBS sports division. Schiller was introduced to the WCW staff on Thursday, replacing Bill Shaw as the head of the company. And the move was expected by many close to the company for at least the past six months. Schiller's role is more of an overseer. And rumor is he's not as much of a hands-on administrator and certainly won't be when it comes to pro wrestling. So Eric Bischoff will still take the major decisions, although the real power in the company will remain with Terry Bollea. Although, if anything, his power is more solidified because it is believed the new direction under Schiller is to produce more of a children's-oriented product and place greater emphasis and focus, if that's even possible, on Hulk Hogan. The belief is that with Schiller, who was hired by TBS to clean up the huge financial losses of the Goodwill Games, head of WCW and TBS Sports, that there would be more of an interfacing between the two organizations. For example situations such as the Thursday night TNT football game where Ric Flair was flown to Minnesota to be a guest building up to the retirement match in October. And then the football directors wouldn't interview him nor even allow him to be shown would be no more. It is also believed that it would put WCW under more scrutiny, which based on some of its recent actions may not hold up very well.
1: This is, see, this is, this is why I think Dave Meltzer is such a piece of shit. And if you, you know, and I'm going to go back. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen to this again and I'm going to ask you to send me th- that quote from his newsletter, whatever the fuck he wrote that this is an example of where you take a grain of truth, one one fact and you build an entire three dimensional fucking narrative around it other than the fact that Harvard Schiller is coming in and is going to oversee Turner Sports, which WCW was already a part of by the way Other than that fact, everything else is bullshit. With not only bullshit, and this is why Dave is such a piece of shit, and why anybody that spends, no, 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 don't cut me off at this point. You threw this stuff out there, and I've got to react to it, and I've got to react to it in my way. When you, when everything that you write, it's one thing to take a a grain of truth, but in that grain of truth, you got to take a shot at Hulk Hogan because we know that's where the real power lies. By the way, that was bullshit, that was not true that's dave that was dave's perception at that time but his perception was tainted and and it was it w- wasn't based on fact the rest of the things that you th- that he wrote about that you just read to me is all nonsense and it's nonsense that dave would not have had possibly had any insight to No one in Turner Broadcasting was talking about Harvey Schiller's role and how he was going to interface within the company. Nobody within Turner Broadcasting, and certainly not anybody within WCW, would have had any idea about any conversations regarding Harvey Schiller being able to deal with challenges like you talked about at a Thursday night TNT football game. All of that is one person's fictional attempt to create something interesting in his newsletter. That's it. And that's the kind of stuff that still, to this day, makes me hot because it's patently false.
0: <laughs> let's uh, let's get to the pay per view, man. We're finally here, uncensored, 1995. Uh, the show opens up with uh, live main event matches, where we would see Alex Wright pin Mark Starr with a crossbody off the top rope in just under three minutes. Then we would see Steve Austin, one of the biggest stars in the business here. He's going to pin Tim Horner with a superplex in a minute twenty-seven. Rob Parker was uh, scouting Austin and then Austin left the ring with Colonel Robert Parker, uh, which is sort of interesting, I guess it got a quarter star. I do find it interesting here because here we are not too terribly long before Austin becomes a major star for the competition. And here you guys are putting in with Colonel Robert Parker and he's working on the pre-show. Now chat me up about why Colonel Robert Parker and Steve Austin made sense to you.
1: Well, I, I didn't book it, number one. And number two, I think the the real obvious point here is that Steve just wasn't in the equation. And just hearing you say that, because I didn't see the, you know, I know you sent me notes, but I didn't have time to look at them be, before the show. Um, when you laid this out to me just now, I'm thinking, are you kidding? I'm looking at my date on my notes. I'm going, March 19th, 95. You mean Austin was still there? That was, it's crazy to think about. Again, you know, so much happened between 95 and 96, 96 and 97. In the big scheme of things, I think we went through two wrestling decades in a matter of three years in terms of evolution and big things happening and major moments in the history of the industry and all that. And it's just hard to imagine Steve Austin being on a warm up, <laughs> an opening act, if you will, and Especially since he's, you know, becomes such a great talker. People will always think, Steve, think of Steve Austin as being one of the best there is on a mic, and deservedly so. And here we are in 1995, and we hadn't tapped into that yet. And by the way, neither had he. So neither one of us had figured it out.
0: Next up, we've got Marcus Bagwell teaming with the Patriot, and they beat Dick Slater and Bunkhouse Buck in nine minutes and 34 seconds. Vader does an interview during the match where he comes out with Jimmy Hart's jacket and the storyline for the rest of the show is that Jimmy Hart has disappeared. And Hogan also does a taped interview with smoke in the background saying that his ultimate surprise was the renegade.
1: Yeah. Yep. <laughs> oh God. I knew this is coming. Look, the, the best defense I can offer your honor. Is that some of the people involved in the creative process were still suffering from a massive nineteen early nineties nineties hangover, and they're still a little bit they were still a little buzzed because this this was so even for a guy that I, it's easy for me to put this in context, and I live in this yeah, but this was going on over here, and that was going on over there, and this is you know from a creative point of view our frame of reference at this time in 1995 was still heavily influenced by what worked for the competition in 92, 93, 94, 91, whatever, you know, early nineties. And this is a manifestation of that disease. (laughs) This is a, is a real symptom here because this, this smacked of, boy, if we ever ripped off WWF, this was it. I mean, oh my God. And we did it poorly. That's the most embarrassing part. And again, I'm saying that now. I'm looking at it now from a perspective 20 some odd years later with a little bit of miles behind me. But man, as I looked at this this morning and I went, ooh, that was, not only did we rip them off, we ripped them off badly. And, And I don't mean badly like we got away with murder. I mean, badly like it sucked. It was just the production values were so cheap. I mean, could you possibly get anybody to do a worse job of trying to recreate the ultimate warrior or, or not a worship a more obvious job of trying to rip rip off ultimate Warrior. the answer to that would be no and for hulk to use him the way he did even the you know the face paint was so i mean just oh my god it was horrible
0: did you try <laughs> to get the real ultimate warrior and the money just couldn't be worked out
1: no it was never a discussion oh my
0: god that makes it way worse to me
1: yeah, I mean, warrior had a pretty, uh, combustible history at that time. You know, nobody really had a lot of confidence in warrior at that time. So it wasn't like we tried or we wanted to, or not, anybody was really excited about having a conversation.
0: I'm not saying this to be a dick. What changed about his perception in the business from 95 to 98, where you don't get it done here, you do get it done in three years. So what changed?
1: I think the conversation I had with him, again, you know, my, first of all, Warrior never reached out to us. And nobody on our side of the equation was motivated or incentivized to reach out to him. It wasn't a need. It wasn't something that we felt really would benefit us, particularly with the type of reputation that Warrior had at that time. I mean, I think the consensus, and I think if you've talked to any number of people that worked with Warrior back then, um, would all pretty much agree that he was just a basket case. He was just too difficult to work with. So it's not like anybody was sitting crazy, but let's go talk to him and see. It was, uh, uh, we don't need to work with him. Don't want to work with him. It's never going to work out. And he conversely never reached out and talked to us. Now that did change. You know, I did end up flying to to Phoenix and having dinner with Warrior uh, whenever it was when I brought him in, and my impression of him was that he wasn't crazy and he wouldn't be difficult to work with. I mean, I knew he was intense. Don't get me wrong; he wasn't your average, you know, even wrestler. You know, wrestler. If you if you think about business people generally speaking, and you have conversations with you know, you don't think about wrestlers as business people. They're characters. Most of them are very over the top characters, even in their their personal lives. Many of them are. Some of them aren't, but you know, Warrior was but when i sat down and talked to him at dinner i knew he was intense extremely intense but not to the point where i didn't think i could work with him in fact i kind of dug it to be honest he was so far out there i remember that first meeting i had with him in phoenix we were sitting outside as i don't remember what it was what time of year it was but it's always nice in phoenix unless it's summertime but we were sitting outside and having a a great dinner, and you know Warrior didn't drink, and I'm not sure I had a cocktail that that night or not. It was early in the evening. and we had just sat down, and he came and he had a a stack of notes. I mean, he looked like a lawyer going to a deposition and sat down at the table. And these are just all the notes that he had. I know we're not talking about Warrior at this point, but it's part of the story. He uh, he had a stack and i'm I'm not exaggerating. it was about eight inches high or more. And it was all these just handwritten notes, drawings, ideas for comic books, ideas for movies, ideas for wrestling angles, ideas for little warriors and kids shows. And I mean, that was overwhelming, you know, to me because he would he'd start talking. I know I talk a lot sometimes and I ramble and I try not to. But this guy made me look like a monk. <laughs> I, mean, I think I just sat there and nodded for four hours. Ah, oh, that makes
0: me happy. Um, Why why does that make you happy? It just does, because the Ultimate Warrior is one of my favorite wrestlers as a kid, and I even had an Ultimate Warrior-themed birthday cake as a kid. I mean, he was my—in 1990, it was him and Hulk Hogan, and and nobody else mattered. And so whenever I get to hear good or bad stories about the Ultimate Warrior, it's just uh, another feather in the cap.
1: I, You know, I know this is not—again, not. I know we want to shift gears here and get back to the pay-per-view, but— I really liked Jim warrior. Sorry, Jim. I liked warrior. I didn't, he was, he ultimately it didn't work out, but it didn't work out because he was uncooperative or unprofessional. It just didn't work out. And sometimes that happens, but his, if I meet somebody that had half as much passion and intensity and, Thoughtfulness. When I mean thoughtfulness, I mean of his character, of his brand, of the opportunities. If somebody, if I could meet somebody that had half of the imagination that Warrior did when it came to his character, I, I would I would embrace him, whether it was a business deal or a partnership or hire them, or whatever, because that kind of passion is what creates amazing characters. And not everybody has it. Some people just they're they're not born with it. They don't see it in their heads, so they can't communicate it. Some people just show up for the money. Some people just show up because they like to be famous. You know, Warrior actually believed in his character in ways that went far beyond anything that most people would even talk about. And I thought that was kind of cool.
0: No argument from me. Uh, Meltzer would write that the ultimate surprise that had originally been teased was supposed to be the road warriors, but Hawk wound up being booked in Japan on March 19th quote. So the last word we've heard is it'll be Rio with another name as an ultimate warrior clone. Since the original cost too much money. Now we'll pretend the last part of the sentence wasn't there. Do you remember the road warriors perhaps being a surprise at the pay-per-view? Was that maybe the ultimate surprise that was teased?
1: I don't know if it was, you know, intended to be the ultimate surprise, but the challenge with the Road Warriors, because I was friendly with both of them and animal more than hawk, but they were constantly being booked in Japan. And that was one of the challenges in working with New Japan is when they use, as they would refer to them as gaijin, which is their word, I guess, for foreigners. I don't know if it translates directly or not, but when they would book wrestlers that were based in the United States with the, with like the world warriors, Gaijin as they refer to them, you know, most of the time guys like the Road warriors would put new Japan was a priority, right? So, so they'd work for us if they were available, but if they weren't available or they might work for us and we'd be talking about it, we'd have a couple conversations and then they'd check with the office in Japan. And if the Japanese said, no, we want to use you on a tour, then we're out of luck. Right. But that was, that was just a fact of life.
0: Let's get to the show itself. I've been waiting to talk to you about this match for a long time. Uh, after the silly open and the silly graphics and the silly rundown of all the silly conditions, we get the silliest match in the history of silly WCW shit. It's a pre-taped King of the road match. Can't believe this is real. There's lots of rumored innuendo. And we'll talk about all that later, but first I want to talk about the actual concept of the match when it was shot, who had the idea, what the fucking guys thought about it. I want to talk about the fallout and all that later. Just for now, let's focus on, Hey man, I got an idea. Why don't we put two dudes in the back of a flat 18 wheeler bed? Let them just beat the shit out of each other. And then they could just climb and ring a bell and that's how they win. Let me just start this off
1: because this is going to I'm only going to say this once and I'm for the sake of our audience cuz they they're not going to want to hear me say this shit over and over again and neither are you. I I didn't book this. I'm responsible for it? I was a part of it? I would have approved it. But in terms of who came up with that idea, unless I'm going to lie to you or just make up a story, I can't tell you. I can tell you that when Sullivan came to me, And said, hey, what do you think about this? And when I say this, it may have been a version of what ended up being this match. at The back of a truck. I dug it. And I'm going to tell you something else. Watching it back today, I still dig it. Because it's different. You can't keep doing the same things over and over and over again and expect a different result. Now, granted, this is kind of an extreme (laughs) departure from what's normally done, but that was the whole intent and branding effort behind this pay-per-view. This pay-per-view was created to present the product in a way that people typically didn't see, hence the name, unsanctioned, uncensored. So, yeah, was it wacky and fucking crazy and semi-ridiculous and actually the wrestling inside a moving truck looked pretty bad? But the idea of it, the conceit, if you will, I think was still smart because it was different. And you can't, look, you can't just constantly do what everybody else is doing and just try to do it a little bit better with a little bit of talent, put some new flashy graphics on it and call yourself creative. Sometimes when you're really creative, you take a risk. And sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. But I don't think this was as bad as the reputation that it has would imply.
0: That's not going to be a
1: hill worth dying on. Um, I don't need to die on it. I've already died a million (laughs) deaths, motherfucker. I'm proof that there's life after death. But – but, I mean, honestly, I know, you know, the wrestling fans, the internet community, hardcore fans, you know, passionate fans. I don't even like call them hardcore fans because that suggests that they're not thinking clearly. People that are really, really passionate about the product are right when they when they criticize this. I'm not suggesting they shouldn't. I'm just saying in the context of what this pay-per-view was, what the goals were – I'm not ashamed that we took a chance. I'm not I'm not embarrassed that we tried something that had never been done before. I'm just not. And I never will be, by the way.
0: Uh, Meltzer would say, this was absolutely horrible to watch because of the way it was shot and edited. Minus two stars. I agree that the editing and the way it was shot left something to be desired. Um, obviously, the work and the concept were what they were, but the actual execution from a production standpoint
1: what did you think of that i think given the limitations the technology of the time you know we didn't have gopros you know we we didn't have small little you know 12 ounce cameras you know that's shot in 4k i mean you know our cameras at that time for this type of a project you know probably weighed 100 pounds 80 pounds. You got a little cameraman in there. You know, everybody trying to film it. You got cars, you know, follow cars alongside of the truck. You got a helicopter. I mean, we did everything we could do, given the technology at the time, to to shoot something that actually looked live. You know, we could have gone the other way and and shot it like you would shoot a movie, which is an entirely different type of production technique altogether and equipment, by the way. And we we could have shot it like it was a scene in a movie. And then the blowback would have been, oh, this is, looks so fake. There's no way they shot it like they're shooting a movie. So, I mean, in order to make it feel like it was really happening, you know, it wasn't taped because that was the goal, clearly, um, and, and make it feel like ENG or electronic news gathering kind of a style, um, we did the best we could with what we had at the time. I, again, we're going down the road, for crying out loud, in a truck while they're wrestling.
0: It's crazy. You got to go watch this. If you've never seen it, it's worth going out of your way to see. Here's the big news coming out of this though. WCW on Thursday fired Dustin Rhodes, blacktop bully and the road agent, Mike Graham over the King of the road match, which was broadcast as part of the uncensored pay-per-view show for use of blood during the match, which is against company policy and a move that has become extremely controversial. In addition, the future of dusty Rhodes with the company is also questionable at this time. Dusty was scheduled to do the co-hosting duties of the live main event show with Eric Bischoff prior to the pay-per-view show, but was replaced at the last minute by Bobby Heenan, who had to do a four hour live broadcast and wound up burning out on commentary, repeating much of his material. Dusty was said to be so upset with the situation, believing it was a setup that the general belief is that he would no longer remain with the company. Although that situation wasn't officially resolved as of press time, um, A lot to cover here. I guess we should say that, uh, well, I'll just keep going. Although purported to be going on live in Tupelo, Mississippi, the match was taped in a rural area near Atlanta on March 14th. According to the story we've heard Graham, who was the supervisor of the match, not only told the two wrestlers to both juice, which is supposedly strictly forbidden under the company's new policy, but actually brought blades with him for both of them to use. Rhodes is 25 and Bully's 35, and they proceeded to do a 20 minute match with both juicing heavily and the few who actually were there during the filming claimed it was an excellent match, but then it was edited down to 13 minutes on television. And although blood was visible at times, it was de-emphasized in the editing and never mentioned in the commentary, the nature of the editing and poor shooting of the match turned the match into a total travesty that aired on pay-per-view. Rhodes and Bully were both fired because supposedly they should have known, despite the request from their superior, that doing so was against company policy. The big controversy is that Hulk Hogan just fled over two weeks ago uh, in his Chicago match with Vader. Which those who believe Rhodes and Bully were made scapegoats because the company was under orders for major budget cutting. And they say that maybe that's the idea is that they can knock half a million dollars off their budget between the Rhodes family and the other two. And uh yeah. So lots of rumor and Innuendo, what really happened, and then we'll talk about Dusty afterwards.
1: Okay, you covered a lot of ground there. So um let's go back to the beginning. Uh Graham, Dustin, and Barry. Um I'm sorry, Blacktop Bully. Uh, yeah, I did fire all three of them. Uh, I had nothing to do with Chicago It had, I, I don't even know what the fuck that was about. I'd have to go back and learn more about that, but there was a policy in place. Uh, I was angry. I was aware that cause everybody was aware. I mean, I, I had a meeting. I said, we're not doing this anymore. Here's why we're not doing this anymore. Here's what's going to happen if it happens by accident. Because sometimes these things do happen in the ring. I mean, when it came to blood, and a lot of this had to do with, by the way, the pressure that uh, WWF was putting on us at that time, and letters that Vince McMahon would write to Ted Turner and all that kind of shit. So there was this constant back and forth. You know, and this was the one, this was the, and I should correct myself, or clarify or both. The only time I ever heard from the North Tower or Bill Shaw was... With regard to blood, that was the only time, and we would kind of seesaw back and forth, just like Vince McMahon would seesaw. He'd he he'd he'd come out and condemn us for it, bury Ted Turner and write his congressman and all you know, health and human services, and you know, try to get politicians on board. Whatever whatever he could do to try to 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 stop our momentum or to throw us off of our, our momentum, he did, and then he'd turn around and do the same thing a couple months later. So there was such a hypocrisy when it came to the blood issue and whether or not we should or shouldn't. Uh, but the fact remains, I made it clear, can't do it anymore. And then they went out and did it. And at that time, and again, I'm younger, not younger. I wasn't as experienced then as I would have been five or ten years later. But at the time, I just got hot. I said, fuck it. I don't care whose fault it is because you, you you've been – peripherally now, and even to the extent that you are now in the business of the wrestling business, you know, how talent can be, you know, blame the guy that's not in the room, you know, fade the heat (laughs) or spread it around enough that nobody gets any, you know, and all of a sudden things cool off. That was the, the way oftentimes talent dealt with issues. And in this particular case, because there was a mandate, not, not just from Bill Shaw, but from, from Turner Corporate, I felt I had to do something. And rather than single any one person out, I just kind of cleared the room. And so that's, that was my approach to Dustin, even though Dustin was a tremendous friend of mine who I'd gone deer hunting with in Wyoming a year or two before. Um, I mean, we were close. Barry Darcel and my wife went to high school together. That's why Barry Darcel was there because of my – not only because he was a a friend of my wife's and went to high school with him, but because I was familiar with him as a result of that. I was familiar with his work in WWF as a result of that friendship. But nonetheless, I pulled the trigger. And, you know, well, I'm not going to talk about my gram, but that's what it was. Now, as far as Dusty goes, let's segue into that point. Um, Dusty was upset. But Dusty also understood and I don't think that the reason Dusty wasn't on the main event with me had – and it could have. I'm, I'm going to leave the door open to that possibility because it, it could have happened. But the, the conversations that I had with Dusty were – he was upset, but he understood. And I'm, you know, I'm going to be real clear here. No ambiguity on this point. I made it clear to all three of them they were going to come back. But I had to make a point. Otherwise, you can't lay down a rule and have people just go, oh, fuck it. You know, I know we did it this time, but you know, whatever. Okay, yeah, you did it and move on. At some point, you have to draw a line. There have to be consequences. And there may have been other points where there should have been other consequences. I'm not denying that. I'm not suggesting there weren't. But in this particular case, because of the red-hot spotlight, no pun intended, that was on the blood issue, I had to make that decision. And I did. And I don't think Dusty was as upset. He was upset generally, but not at me. We were still communicating fairly well. Now, if Dave is right in his reporting and Dusty was so upset that he decided not to go to the pay-per-view, or perhaps I said, Dusty, sit this one out. It's okay. Eh, that could have happened. I don't think so, but it could have. I'll leave the door open to that
0: let me ask this. I've always wanted to know, you know, because obviously the result of this is he want, he being Dustin pronouns, pal winds up signing and going over to the WWF and becoming gold dust. What do you think his future may have been had this match never happened? What, what, what did did Uh, you see in, in Dustin Rhodes? Not the 25 year old version here, but let's fast forward five years. It's, 2000 it's it's 97 the nwo is here like what 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 opportunities would have existed for him had he been able to stick around and not had to look for work somewhere else and then put on a wig and paint up and become an iconic character that's still selling merchandise like crazy today
1: yeah i mean that's um, now i'm going to become guilty of of doing what i criticize other people of doing but who knows? You know, it's a hypothetical, but my, I'll tell you, I'll start. Let's start with this. My impression of Dustin at that point as a talent was very, very high. I should say my my opinion of him was very, very high as a talent. Um, in terms of where could that possibly, you know, using our imaginations now, 25 years later, where could that have gone? Look, I, I think Dustin could have been, had he, stayed around had i had well while i had the influence i had during the time i had it uh he would have been one of our top guys because the story was there the relationship with dusty was there you know dusty still even in 1995 much like rick flair represented the face of the brand of the original roots of wcw those were all things that were real. Those are all creative assets. It's no different than having, you know, a great set of screwdrivers and wrenches and, you know, power drills in your toolbox. Those are those are assets and tools that you could use to build a great story with. So as hypothetical as your question is, I think it's fair to say given – Dustin's relationship with Dusty, Dusty's relationship with the audience, the audience's perception of the origins of WCW and its relationship to NWA and knowing now what we didn't know then, which is where, you know, the NWO was going to come in. I think Dustin could have very, very well been placed right in the forefront of the much like Sting uh, and and maybe as a backup to Sting or I should say a co-star with Sting. Um, not a backup, but a co-star as the two guys that were going to fight for the integrity and, and, the, the pride of WCW during the height of the NWO WCW, you know, war, if you will. It's crazy. To if think you about. will, if you will, baby, I've been listening. I've been listening to a lot of dusty Rhodes the last couple of weeks.
0: I'm not mad at it. Allegedly, uh, dusty is going to be the center point of the uh, Berry hall of fame induction because they're trying to, uh, roll out the WCW hall of fame in St. Petersburg, where obviously he was a big name all throughout Florida. So, you know, the end of the story, he winds up working it out. He sticks around no big deal, but Dustin did write about this in his book. He says, I was fired by the WCW for blading. I knew it was against WCW rules. It was in the script and I actually questioned whether or not we could do it on the bus ride to a shoot. And I told the head producer, for whatever reason, WCW Eric Bischoff, WCW boss, Eric Bischoff doesn't want us to blade. We need to get this approved from above. Uh, I didn't want to blade because I knew the consequences, but sure enough, the producer told us we had approval still wasn't comfortable, but what the hell, I didn't have a problem with it. Just didn't want to get fired for it. And, uh, yeah, he writes all about the match in his book, which is kind of fun. Uh, but he does t- write in his book. Uh, that's why what happened the next day was such a shock. I didn't see it coming. None of us saw it coming. Mike Graham, who was an agent and I drove back to Atlanta together. It was just another routine day at the office. And then the next day Mike called and said they had to let him go. Quote, be prepared, Dustin. You're probably going to get a call too." sure enough. The call came and there were a lot of people coming into the company at the time, some of them with huge salaries. I've always thought they trumped up the whole thing so they could move some money around and take care of some other people. I would have never done something that I knew was against company policy. I'm a businessman first. And I even told Eric I did, what I was told to do. I brought up the fact that our booking sheets were made clear that we were supposed to follow any directions by the agents. And I told them that, uh, a call hey, I was told that a call had been made, but Eric didn't bend. We've got to let you go. Dustin, I was making a good salary at the time and I could have taken legal action, but that would have cost me time and money. I just didn't know what I was going to do one way or another at that point. So I just let it sit. As it turned out, it was the best decision I could have made because Eric took care of me down the road. So he's, uh, he's nice to you on the way out, but that's the second time we've heard somebody hypothesize that, Hey, uh, they're trying to make the budgets work to bring in some new names.
1: Well, the first person you heard hypothesize about that was Dave Meltzer And I'm sure that by the time Dustin Rhodes got around to writing his book, he probably had heard that narrative as well. And and again, I I don't want to spend any more time or energy going off on Dave Meltzer, but it wasn't true. And to suggest that, I mean, it's great, you know, it's very creative to suggest that the reason I made the decision I made was to save money for somebody else. That makes, that makes my decision. It diminishes the decision. It certainly takes emphasis off of why the decision had to be made. It does a lot of things, but mostly it helps create a narrative that Dave consistently has had, had been making throughout this entire period of time. Whenever possible, take a shot, diminish Hogan, diminish WCW, diminish the talent, diminish it in any smart-ass way that you can. That was his agenda. And it wasn't true. It had nothing to do with money. It had everything to do with me standing up in front of a bunch of people telling them not to do something and having them do it, which is why I fired everybody. And it's why, by the way, I let everybody know, sit down, take, take, take the kick in the balls. It'll be okay soon. And they all got hired back. So fuck it. And Dave Meltzer. Damn the oh dog God, I didn't want to say his name again.
0: Let's keep it going here. Uh let's talk about the next match, which is fucking hysterical. Ming and Jim Duggan in a martial arts match. Let me start that sentence over again. Ming is wrestling hacksaw Jim Duggan in a martial arts match. And the
1: crowd goes wild. Ah.
0: It's spectacular. Meltzer would write Eric's best friend, confidant, and sometimes interpreter, Sonny Ono served as referee doing a heel Japanese gimmick. They tried to set it up like it was a karate style match, except I've never heard of pinfalls in karate. This was among the worst matches of all time. Tons of stalling early. Ming mainly used nerve holds when Duggan wasn't making comebacks with some of the most pitiful looking offense of all time. Duggan looked much worse than usual, which I didn't think was even possible. Finished. Saw Duggan use the spear on Ming, who popped back up. Since they're trying to push him as a monster, Duggan then began pounding on Rob Parker. As the referee grabbed Duggan's arms from punching, leaving him outstretched. Ming delivered a thrust kick for the pin. Negative two stars. What a flaming turd piece of shit match this is. Defendant.
1: Nah, I don't think I will. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Jesus Christ. Hacksaw Jim Duggan in a martial arts match. Uh, (laughs) I I know the hacksaw has his spot in the business and I'm not begrudging a man for making a living, but holy cow, this is a fucking bad idea.
1: (laughs) Oh God. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's so ironic that I said because you know, you told me last week, you said, Ah, I can't wait to bust your ass when we get into uncensored ninety-five. And I'm thinking, okay, I better be ready for this shit. I know he's coming. He told me he's coming. It's like somebody coming up to you go, Hey, I'm going to come to three. and I'm going to punch you right between the fucking eyes. Well, if you know you're going to get punched between the eyes, you should at least take the time to figure out how to avoid it. So I had a whole week, almost a whole week, knowing you were going to just try to put me through the Thompson wood chipper. And, and I thought, okay, I got to figure out a good way to come at this. So it doesn't sound as bad as it looked at the time. I went, nah, fuck it. This is really bad. I really, really fucked this up by letting this happen.
0: <laughs> you know, it's, uh,
1: and, uh, tell him Eric sent you
0: next up. We've got Johnny B bad working with Arn Anderson. So arguably one of the all time greatest wrestlers of all time. And then Brock Lesnar's Eskimo brother. It's a boxer wrestler gimmick. Can't believe, uh, nobody has done this since uh, actually i guess you could watch this and figure out why they didn't they do an okay job with this and this is uh sort of the genesis of even the ufc you know there was a guy in the very first early ufcs uh who wore maybe the very first one who came out with one boxing glove on and that was sort of the the idea behind the ufc what would happen if a karate man fought a wrestler well we get boxer wrestler here and uh, I guess we've seen it before, things like, you know, Mr. T and and Roddy Piper, and this is
1: a little twist on that, of course. How about Muhammad Ali and uh you know, Antonio Anoki Antonio, Antonio
0: way back in the day. And, and here we've got um Mark Miro's trainer, sorry, Johnny B. Bad's trainer, Rock Finnegan. And in real life, Mark Miro was a Golden Gloves boxer, but we're years past that, of course, and he's doing the old Rocky Um, you know, trainer gimmick in the corner. And, uh, a lot of this is sort of played funny, but they're, they're doing rounds. And, uh, well, it is what it is. I suppose. Eventually Finnegan puts a bucket on Arn Anderson's head and Johnny B bad punches the bucket. And then he takes his glove off and delivers the knockout punch at 22 seconds of round three. Uh, Meltzer would say this was hardly the type of mixed match they do in Japan, but for what it was, it was entertaining two and a half stars. I got to tell you, when you just read about this and you see it on paper, you think, boy, this is just going to be a turd, but it was a little campy at times, but they made the most of it. This is way better than I expected. And maybe that's just because I watched it back to back with Jim Duggan and a fucking martial arts
1: match. Uh, I'm going to. See, I wasn't really sure where you were going because you started off by saying it was a turd, and then you ended up by putting it over.
0: Well, as as a standalone, it would be horrible, but I do think you know just the concept of it is like, nah, that sucks. However, right after a Jim Duggan martial arts match, okay, uh, anything's good.
1: Uh, now you are just being smarky. I, I I'll just tell you what I think. When I saw the match, I liked it a lot, and I and, I'll, and again. My disclaimer, I look at things differently now than I did in the past. Yeah, I look at things differently now than I did a year ago. I, I look at the formula. I, I look at the mechanics of the storytelling. I, I, I look at the psychology. More than anything, I look at the psychology because I I think that's one of the things that has been missing for a long, long time, the story and the psychology. And as I looked at this, expecting it to be as bad as everybody else probably thought it is or thinks it is to this day, I would suggest to you that it was very, very good. I liked it a lot. I think Johnny looked, because he was a boxer, he could make his application of boxing look believable. Right. One of the hardest things to do is when you're a boxer or even a kickboxer or a karate person is to If it's legitimate, if you're a legitimate boxer, you're a legitimate kickboxer to put yourself in the ring and then work those punches or work those kickings. Because that's an entirely different art form than the actual skill of boxing or kickboxing. Just because you can do one doesn't mean you can do the other very well. And Johnny's boxing, his worked boxing in this match, I thought looked phenomenal. I only counted maybe two or three punches that I went, eh. And looked like a work punch. The rest of them, especially the body shots, looked completely believable. And by the way, I just got done watching before I watched <laughs> this pay-per-view to, to prep for this this episode. I watched Mike Tyson fight Mitch Green way back when, when Tyson was coming up. And the the body shots – I'm not comparing Johnny B. Bad to Mike Tyson by any stretch of the imagination. Let's not lose our fucking minds if you're listening to this. But what I'm suggesting to you is the, the punches. If you go back and watch this on the WWE Network and you queue up this match, I think Johnny looked damn good. And one of the reasons he looked damn good is because Arn did a textbook classic job of selling for him and making him or helping him to look good. But if you go back and watch this, and you see Arn in the corner, you know he's got his elbows up real high, so that um, Johnny had plenty of access to deliver some great-looking body shots. Arn took some stiff shots to the head too, and I'm guessing—I don't know this, but knowing Arn the little bit that I do—at least did back then, when they were back in a corner and Johnny was firing away and tagging him, I'm almost certain Arn was telling him to lay them in, and I could tell. When they clinched and in, in the intensity of Johnny's offense, I can almost hear Arn saying, "Dig, dig, lay it in, lay it in," and he did, and it looked great. J- uh, Arn gave Johnny at least sixty percent of this match, so Arn, you know, hats off to Arn Anderson the night, on, on, on March nineteenth, nineteen ninety-five, because he gave everything he had to get Johnny over. And and he did it in a textbook way. And I would encourage people, if you're an up-and-coming wrestler, if you're thinking about it, if you're a big fan of the independent scene, go back and watch. Don't don't watch the match to judge it, you know, and give it a two-star, a five-star, whatever. Don't look at it from that perspective. Look at it from the perspective of the psychology. Was it a unique match? It was a gimmick match. It's one of the reasons I don't like gimmick matches. It was a gimmick match. And there was some hee-haw in it at the end with the bucket. Yeah, there was some levity. There was some humor but it got Johnny over. And if you don't believe me and you think I'm just making all this shit up, go back and look at the end of this match. Watch the crowd react. Forget about what I'm telling you. Go back, watch the match on WWE network. And you tell me whether that action in the ring was successful or not.
0: Let's get to the next match because this is a lot going on here. Randy Savage is going to beat avalanche by DQ. Oh, when Ric Flair interferes, but, uh, Rick interfered from the crowd and, uh, he was in drag dressed up like a woman.
1: <laughs> I don't know, man. You know, I, I've told you, I've, I've said this to other people. I've said it in the interviews. My opinion, wrestling needs a good a good pay-per-view should be like walking into a good buffet should be a little bit for everybody. And there was some crazy over the top antics here, but no one is ever going to convince me that Ric Flair and drag, particularly in the promo that he's going to cut later on with the mascara on with with Vader is not just classic wrestling. It's just was so much fun. Would you see that in Japan? No, but was it part and parcel of the formula that was fairly successful during that time? Relatively successful would be a better way to say it. Yes, it was. Was it done really well? Yes, it was. But it was hokey as shit. Did I lose
0: you? No, (laughs) I'm just.
1: uh... No, you want to you want to tell me I'm full of shit? Tell me I'm full of shit. I, I don't care. I, I'm just, you know, i, I I'm just got to tell you how I feel. I th- I laughed. I mean,
0: I want to hear you pitch. Tell me what the pitch sounded like when you go to one of the greatest wrestlers of all time, one of the elder statesmen of WCW, the guy that helped
1: build the damn place. And you say,
0: Hey man, got an idea.
1: First of all, I didn't go pitch him. So I can't tell you. Secondly, he didn't put up a bitch. Now, maybe you know, after the fact or years later, he pointed it out as something he hated doing. Maybe he was embarrassed about it or whatever. but uh, nobody came to me and said, "God, Ric Flair doesn't want to do this. It's pretty crazy. Look at him. He's no. having fun for crying out loud. He's getting heat. Rick loves heat. He may <sighs> he may have he may hate a lot of things, but heat isn't one of them.
0: just you know. A lot of people say that, uh, boy, Dustin wouldn't have had, to become androgynous and, and wear a blonde wig. If he didn't go to the WWF, well, maybe if he stuck around WCW long enough, they'd, they'd have to dress in drag. I mean, they did it to Nate. Why not?
1: Let's well, get, there you go. see. Get, there's nothing wrong with the formula work for, du- I mean, obviously, Dustin is probably financially well off for the rest of his life because he dressed in drag. So it sounded like the idea from a, from a conceptual point of view is that alien
0: Here's an alien idea. Big Bubba (laughs) Rogers gets a win over sting in a major upset next 13 minutes and 43 seconds sting blows out his knee badly early doing a leapfrog that doesn't clear Bubba Rogers. And then Bubba goes to work on the knee for several minutes and sting makes a comeback, but always selling the knee. And finally, after being clipped sting goes for a slam, but the knee goes out and Rogers falls on him for the pin two and a half stars way better than I expected. Uh, At at this point, as far as in-ring work goes, I think the best days were probably behind the big boss man back when he first jumped ship from Jim Crockett to the WWF and he was the big boss man and working with Hogan. I think he was impressing a lot of people. But by this point, it does feel like that ship had sailed. But this is probably one of his best matches in WCW here. And I love the finish. What'd you think?
1: The... What did I think? It's funny when I watched the match this morning, I was really impressed with Ray Trailer. And as I'm listening to you now, not knowing what your question was going to be or your comments about Ray's abilities at that time were going to be, what I was impressed with was his ability to bump. Yeah. And and again, going back to what something I said earlier, because I'm going to have to point this out, or I probably will point this out a couple times throughout the rest of the show. This is still, we're we're coming off the hangover era of the big man. You know, the big 300-pound, 350-pound guy, you know, Vader, Big Bubba, Avalanche, you know, this was still kind of the formula that everybody had previously had success with. And right or wrong, mostly wrong, it was the same formula that they would continue to go back to and try. They tried different variations of it, but they would try. And that's why Bubba was in the role that he was in at this time, along with a number of other people. But when I looked at this match, I was a little surprised by the finish because clearly I didn't remember the details of this pay-per-view off the top of my head. But in going back and watching it, I was a little surprised at the finish. I didn't like the finish, I guess, as much as you did. It left Again, to me, it was kind of typical anticlimactic type of, of a finish. Uh, at least for me, but what I didn't make a note of is just how amazing Ray Trailer's work was in the ring. Now, maybe not his offense, admittedly not his offense, but with a guy like Ray Trailer, you want to be in there with him, not because he's got great offense, but because he can bump for you and make you look like a million bucks. And to that extent, I think that Ray did a pretty good job.
0: I love the match. I think it's fun. And, uh, I I enjoyed the next one too. It's the nasty boys and Harlem heat and what Melzer would call a weird tornado match. Uh, he would observe, uh, pardon the pun. The crowd seemed really tired by this point. Sherry Martell was smothered in the nasties armpits early. There's a, a garbage can, um, poured on Stevie Ray. They're fighting to the back of the arena and they set up like a fake concession stand and, uh, they start throwing things. But the funny part is the floor gets soaked with, I guess, Coke products or whatever. And it's so slippery because they're in their wrestling boots on concrete that they can't have any footing, which is not only funny, but probably pretty dangerous too, uh, because if they, uh, slip and crush an elbow, that's bad news. Meltzer would say it was easily the worst concession stand brawl in history, but it's almost an inherent that a concession stand brawl is going to be good. Uh, the Harlem heat wound up with mustard all over them and, um, yeah. Anyway, one of the uh, stands collapsed when the guys are whipped into it and knobs pins Booker T with a power slam on the wood from that stand. Two and a half stars. It's a fun throwaway gimmick match. Uh, Not nearly the intensity we've seen in some of these other nasty boys uh, matches like this, but I enjoyed it for what it was. But I did laugh out loud when these guys were busting their ass on the concrete, which probably makes me a bad person.
1: No, man, this this was and I started out going, eh, I got to sit and watch this and make notes. eh. I, my temptation was to fast forward through it because of my just inherent distaste for this type of thing. But when we got to the concession stand. I found myself jumping out of my seat, and watching it standing up because at a minute, 41 or one hour, 41 minutes and two seconds, Sherry takes a bump over the top rope that was nothing short of spectacular. And if anybody listening to this ever has a question or hears somebody else question why would we bring Sherry Martel into WCW, go to the WWE network, look for uncensored 95, go to 1 hour 41 minutes and 2 seconds and watch Sherry Martel take that bump over the top rope. Fucking awesome. Then we get to, we get down to the concession stand at about 1 hour 42 minutes Cotton candy. At one hour, 42 minutes, and 45 seconds, it you see Jerry Sags trying to smother his opponent with a giant rack of cotton candy. I've never seen cotton candy used as a weapon. It may be a first. It's probably a last, but keep your eye out. It was fucking hilarious. And then the bump of all bumps and the commentary to support it, one hour, 43 minutes, almost flat, Brian Nobbs, you know, to support what Dave was observing when he was writing this, that floor was so slick that Brian Knobs took a bump that I su- I'm surprised he ever got up from. I mean, I'm 220 pounds right now to 10. If I would take that kind of a bump and land on my hip on a concrete floor, even when I was in my 30s and 40s, there would be traction involved. Brian was 300 pounds. And his feet went straight up in the air, and he came down right on his left hip. I think it was his left hip. On the concrete. No pads, nothing. I went, oh, my God. No wonder he limps when he walks. And then it just got crazier from there. I mean, I quit, uh, I quit writing the time codes because the bumps were so ridiculous. And they were real. They weren't like, oh, watch me. I'm going to do this. <laughs> I'm going to bump myself here and make it look good. <laughs> this was – they were really, really – uh, crashing and burning out there on a the concrete floor with all the sh- crap that was all over the floor. Really, go back and watch it. And by the way, one hour, 43 minutes flat, When approximately when, when Nobbs takes that bump, Bobby Heenan almost instantaneously says, and he's safe, which just cracked me up. It was awesome.
0: Easily the best line of the whole show. All right, let's get to the main event. The silliest shit ever Hulk Hogan beat Vader in a strap match when he drug Ric Flair around to all four corners.
1: Yeah, this was screwy as fuck. Um, uh, you know, the match itself is what you would expect between Vader Hogan, two really, really big guys. And by the way, one of the things I noticed here, Vader was probably the heaviest I think I've ever seen him, uh, in this particular match. Maybe, maybe, maybe not as heavy as he's ever been, but at this point he was huge. Um, wasn't nearly as athletic as previous outings and Hulk was Hulk. So, you know, the, the ring work, if you will, um, work rate, eh, not really there from a conceptual point of view, storytelling point of view inside of the ring, maybe worse but it was a true you know, and I understand it. And it is, this is, you know, this is where I kind of talk myself off the ledge a little bit. I understand what we were trying to accomplish. This wasn't a match that was designed to have a definitive end to a story. It was a transition. It was setting up what was coming up down the road. And as a result, I thought it was really, really bad. Wow. Pay per view should have, and I'm sorry, Conrad, I don't mean to interrupt you. Um, Pay-per-views really should, with rare exceptions, and and even those exceptions should be really, really um, paced and and, and separated in time, it should be the end of a story. And using a main event, particularly with guys like this, as a means to an end, bad, bad, bad juju.
0: It starts off snake bit because Michael Buffer talks about how this match was sanctioned by WCW. The whole fucking gimmick of the pay-per-view is that it's unsanctioned. And then he refers to Hulk Hogan as the leader of Hulk mania, not Hulkamania. And the renegade runs out as if we needed more bullshit on this show. He has, um, dressed up in his best ultimate warrior cosplay. They're trying to do (laughs) nearly identical ultimate warrior music. He's going to spend the entire match turning Ric Flair into his personal punching bag and not selling a fucking thing. And then Jimmy Hart magically shows up with torn up clothes, running around ringside with the story that he's been bound and ganged. Do you know why?
1: Do you know why he did that? Why? Because there was a camera with a red light on. There there you go. He was compelled to come running out of the back because he knew if he could get facing that hard camera, he was going to get even more television time.
0: Flair still got on his, uh, Eye makeup, which just looks ridiculous, and they they go forever here. I mean, it's a it's a long time in this match, uh, but the show still ends like twenty minutes early. I guess it's worth mentioning. Um, a masked man who was supposed to have been Arn Anderson in a black scorpion style outfit runs ringside and hits Renegade with a chair and runs off. Then Flair attacks Hogan, hits Renegade a few more times with the chair. And Vader starts dragging Hogan around, but Flair tells him to stop and puts Hogan onto a chair and tells Vader to come on the ropes to him or come off the ropes on him. Of course, Hogan moves and Vader just winds up flipping onto the chair, which breaks, uh, and then Flair, uh, gets another balsa wood chair, breaks it over Hogan. He doesn't sell it at all. Hogan puts the strap on Flair, big boot to the face, leg drop. And then he drags Flair around to all four corners to win the match. And after the match, Vader attacks Hogan. They have a standoff with Renegade. The black scorpions back out again. But this time, Anderson crawls out of the dressing room, all bound and gagged with the idea that now the scorpion (laughs) was Randy Savage, who had stolen the costume from Anderson. And now he and Renegade clear the ring. What the fuck?
1: As you're laying this out, because I just watched this probably an hour before you know we started recording this, so it's all fresh in my mind. When Arn Anderson comes out, honestly, God, if you don't have the WWE network, I think if you go there now, you could probably order it. You get your first month free or some bullshit. Whatever it is, it is. Even if it's not free, go ahead and spend the money for no other reason than to watch Arn Anderson come out. He's got his his. T- his feet are taped together. His hands are taped together in front of him. And he's taking these little tiny steps coming up out, out from behind the, uh, uh, down the ramp, if you will, the aisle. It looks so fucking ridiculous. I mean, I was, I had tears in my eyes. I was laughing so hard. All
0: right, Eric, what do you think, man? Overall, is this the piece of shit that I said it was, or do you think maybe it gets a bad rap and you're still going to try to defend it?
1: I don't feel the need to defend it. I think it gets a bad rap. I think it certainly wasn't one of our better pay-per-views. Again, I can't help it. I put things in context. I look at the time, the place, the situation, the tools we had to work with at the time, and just generally the state of the wrestling business. And if I take all those things into consideration and try to give it a 1 to a 10, 10 being the best, I'd say it was a 6, maybe, maybe between a 5 and a 6. It it wasn't great. It also wasn't horrible. It you know Johnny B. Bad and I was just thinking about this a minute ago, going back to you know your comments about this match and and I know you liked it and you enjoyed it more than I thought you were going to, but I think if there was ever a chance to go back and really get somebody over and then create and, and create momentum in the process, this match could have. It didn't. Clearly, it didn't. Johnny Johnny B. Bad did not go on to become a star. Uh, for us, or or WWF, for that matter. But Arne Anderson did such a phenomenal job putting over Johnny B. Bad, And Johnny B. Bad did such a great job in his execution that I think this match is probably way, way underrated from a psychology point of view Um, and an execution point of view. Some of it was downright horrible, you know, the main event. Just it, it was a bad idea. And it and it was with two guys that aren't capable of going out and you know having a match that required a ton of work rate and then to have all the the schmas the the you know the run ins and the chairs and the blah 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 all of that is really camouflage and to just dump that much camouflage onto a match like that didn't make it better and didn't hide the flaws and actually exacerbated them and it's 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 not. It's not the talent, you know, it's, it, and again, it's easy to go back 25 years later and criticize somebody else's idea, especially when you've never been in the business of trying to come up with your own. But as flawed as it was from a conceptual point of view and from a work rate point of view, I can't help but understand the why. And because I understand why, I don't hate it as much as probably the fans do. And I understand why they do. It, it was bad. I'm not proud of it. I wish I could go back in time and have another crack at this one, but I, I just don't think it was this. Oh, yeah, it was bad. I don't want to say horrible, but <laughs> I'm getting close. <laughs>
0: the number one question we got on social media about this show is around the main event Hulk Hogan's wrestling Vader, but he drags Flair around to win the match. Did Vader refuse the job? Did Hogan refuse the job? Was Flair just the go-to, hey, he's on pay-per-view, he's got to find a way to lose?
1: No, see, and that's, that's kind of like the knee-jerk reaction that a lot of fans who spend a lot of time, whether it's a chat room or anywhere else, absorbing other people's opinions about things like this. There was no refusal by anybody to do a job. That's something that is so fucking rare. In my experience, that in fact I will say, to you, other than Honky Tonk Man, I can't think of anybody that ever came to me and said, "I'm not going to do this." Now I've had people come to me, as I'm sure Vince McMahon has, and if Bruce, you know, will ever engage in that conversation, I'm sure, I'm confident, I know of people <laughs> who didn't like what they heard and petitioned to have it changed from, from in, in the WWE, as they did with me. But I've never had anybody other than honky-took man, say, no, nope, I'm not doing that. So the, 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 it wasn't that. So I, I'm going to try to pound a stake through the heart of that narrative as best I possibly can. Now, in terms of why it was done, not 100% sure. I'm guessing to a degree because I under, I, I know Hulk Hogan now. Or that, I know Hulk Hogan now better than I did then. But even then, Hulk was thinking about Rick. Hulk was thinking about what's next. He wasn't thinking about what's now, and that's a mistake. By the way, I'm not suggesting that you know that's the right way to approach a pay-per-view. Actually, I'm going to go the other way and suggest that's really a the wrong way to approach a pay-per-view. While well, you always have to have your eye on what's next, because we all have to live another day. We all have, you know, that's that's the real challenge. And people that have never done it, when I say I'm not being, I'm not minimizing other people's opinions. Please understand that. But until you've actually sat down and written episodic TV, episodic TV, meaning it's story, one leads to the next, it leads to the next, it leads to the next. And until you've done that, you don't know what the pressure is to to lay out a pay-per-view that's going to lead you to the next pay-per-view. And sometimes if you're not disciplined, which we weren't, at that time, myself included, as a producer, if you don't stay stay in your lane and remember exactly what the goal of that pay-per-view was, you'll find yourself trying trying, ineffectively, to set yourself up for what's next. And in the process of doing so, you completely dilute, which we saw here, what should be happening now. Does that make sense? Yes. Good, because I'm winded.
0: Well, hopefully uh, you can fare this well next week when we cover Uncensored 96 with a triple doomsday cage. It's Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage versus the fucking world.
1: I'm looking forward to it. God, that sucked. I hate it already. Let's just skip it. Here, let's record that show right now. We'll just do this now, and then you could edit it in as as its own separate show. I agree with you, Conrad. That pay-per-view sucked. In the
0: meantime, he is at E. Bischoff. I am at, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad and we are out of time. We'll see you next week, right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff.
1: John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round together.